Friends, let's take our copy of the Bible and go to Galatians chapter 3, would you? Mention for the benefit of our guests, if you're here and maybe this is your first time uh, with us, we're so glad you're here. Um, we regularly tell you that this is um, where we are today in, in the scriptures. It's kind of prescribed for us because we work through books of the Bible. This is not arbitrary. So uh, the, whatever preacher is preaching, we don't just pick a text. It's sort of what comes next. And uh, we are uh, in the book of Galatians, have been since the beginning of the year. And we are beginning the, the third chapter. So we're going to look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. You know, there are times when love must take the form of candor or bluntness or frankness. Uh, there are times when we simply have to be clear, and in our use of language, there, there may be a little more of a serrated edge in the way that we speak as a way of, of pressing the urgency of the matter and Sometimes bluntness is, is necessary. We need friends who will say, look, what you're doing is foolish. Now, I, I love you, but that is dumb, what you just said. You are wrecking your life through your behavior. Not bluntness for the sake of bluntness, but bluntness that rises out of deep affection and concern. This is what my buddy calls big boy talk. This is speaking really frankly. Well, Paul, you know, if you'll remember, was concerned with a particular heresy that had come into the Galatian church. What we call, not Judaism, but Ju the Judaizers. It was a distortion of the gospel message. It presented Christ as crucified, but it attached behaviors to the work of Christ and made them essential for a right standing with God. So what this looked like particularly was, for a Gentile to be included into the people of God, they would have to submit to the rite of circumcision, and they would have to honor the Sabbath. They had to alter their diet so that it reflected the code of the Old Testament. Uh, they honored the feast days, all the calendar matters. And the, the Galatians who had been rooted in a true gospel, had begun to drift. They were receiving this message. And you can see a level of urgency in the way that Paul speaks to them in this text. Like this, this is big boy talk. Let's look at it. Beginning verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes. Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham 
believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. I think every speech teacher, every skilled communicator knows the importance of a strong introduction. Maybe something provocative or engaging. Maybe a story or a a particularly forceful quote that sort of pulls in your hearers in order to give you their ear. I think it would be risky for me to step up here and the first things out of my mouth say, oh, you dumb, dumb people. Are you really this foolish? Well, Paul does come out strong, doesn't he? He comes out forceful in this text. The Phillips translation says that first line, oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. You dumb people, you, are you really this foolish? Well, his frankness, you know this, his frankness reflects the seriousness of his concern. Because this is centered, this is not just, uh, this is not just a brazen comment that is arbitrary. His frankness reflects the seriousness of the subject. This is right at the very heart of the gospel. This is how people like you and I and his friends at Galatia can be reconciled to the Father. Nothing more important than that. This is how we become sons and daughters of God. This is how the wrath of God, the actual wrath of God, is answered. So this, is, this, this calls for the kind of candor that we see the apostle using here. We know that his concern was still the Judaizers, but here he's addressing specifically the Galatian church, uh, particularly their response to this heresy. They had bought it. They had received this message, and they were starting to engraft, whereas they should have been celebrating and reveling in the glory of the gospel. They were scheduling surgeries, and they were getting off of work on Saturdays, and they were planning pilgrimages, and they were adjusting their diet, and all of these things, and attaching to that, and attaching to that merit. Well, Paul deals with it, frankly. I mean, he speaks really clearly to their hearts. And it comes, really this whole text mainly, just comes as a barrage of questions. Do you see that as I read it? A whole flurry of questions. Let me just ask you, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What you've observed, what you've suffered, what you've experienced, was that in vain? Was that pointless? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfected? Are you now advancing in your maturity by the flesh? He is, he's going to come. We're going to see this as we work through this, just as, a, as a, a, a whole series of rhetorical questions. And he is calling them to reflection. He's saying, look, think about what happened to you. He's arguing for the senselessness of works righteousness. The implausibility of works as the basis for our acceptance. And he's argue, I think, in this text from two perspectives. So you get an idea where we're going. First, an, an experiential argument, and then an argument from Scripture, specifically the example of, 
of Abraham, which will extend into the chapter. So he's going to say, consider your story. Consider how you came to Christ, how you received the Spirit, how you began. began. And then consider Abraham. So he's going to argue for hearing and belief as the basis for hope in our own experience and in Abraham. So sort of the big idea, and this is probably good for you to get this right out of the gate, is all who come, come by faith. All who actually come to the Lord come by faith, and that includes Abraham. So that's really the the thrust. So two approaches that he addresses in this text could not be less obvious in the text. Two approaches in this passage. The works of the law or hearing with faith. Do you see that? So we've got to hold those as two contrasting ideas. When you came, when you came, did you come by works of the law? Or were you received on the basis of hearing and believing the gospel? Vital question. By the way, that word hearing, the, the notion of hearing, that's probably as central an idea in the Hebrew mind as maybe any. In fact, that, that is probably the most repeated word in, in the language of the Hebrew tongue. This would have been taught to children from their infancy. I said a few weeks ago, they would drink in the law from their mother's milk. So their fathers would speak to them early in their life. Uh, Those wonderful words from Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. You know what that word Shema means? It means hear. It means listen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is that God. He is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then teach them to your children. As you're here a little there a little, as you're walking by the way, and as you're sitting down. That is, it is central to life in Christ is an ear to hear. So that's what Jesus would always say. He'd lay out this parable and then he'd say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, here he is is pointing to hearing as central to our inclusion in the people of God. Works of, works of the law, hearing with faith. Well, first he wants us to consider our own experience, particularly the Galatians. And he's saying, this is not, look, this is what you observe. So he's going to point to three things. First, they saw the crucified Christ. Second, they received the Spirit. And third, they saw the miraculous. They witnessed remarkable things, things that only God could do. And so that's going to kind of ground these questions that he's asking. You saw the crucified Christ. You see it there in our text? He said, it is before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, Paul is not saying that the Galatians witnessed the crucifixion. They did not. None of the Galatian church would have been in Jerusalem to, to see our Lord crucified. But he's saying, I'm telling you, I preach there. I preach to you. And I... I don't know where you got this, but I know you didn't get it from me. Because when I preached, I portrayed Christ publicly as crucified. He's saying to the Galatia the same thing he said to Corinth, right? Look, I didn't know anything among you except for Christ crucified. My my message was singular. I held up before you Christ and him crucified. He's saying it was before your eyes that Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. The cross was our message. It was not hidden. It was plain as day. 
The cross was not hard to see. One of the commentators said this word actually carries the idea of it was placarded. It was, it was on our billboard. In our day, this would have been the thing that is up there in neon so that you can see it. It was public. It was direct. It was obvious. It was not hidden. Before your very eyes, Jesus was portrayed publicly. Not just portrayed, but portrayed as crucified. There's an emphatic uh, participle there in the language at the end of this sentence. and The, the tense communicated doneness. He was crucified. This was completed. This was entirely done. Something accomplished, the tense communicates, something accomplished in the past that has ongoing effect. So what, Galatia, what he's saying to Galatia is this. Look, when we came and preached to you, I'm telling you, I know what I taught. I know what you heard. And it was the completed work of Jesus Christ. That's what we preached to you. You know this. It was before your very eyes. His work that does not need to be supplemented. It was complete. He was crucified, past tense. And that completed act in the past has ongoing effect in your life. We're going to be singing this in the coming weeks. Heart the voice of love and mercy. Sounds aloud from Calvary. See it rends the rocks asunder, shakes the earth and veils the sky. It is finished. It is finished. Hear the dying Savior cry. Now I love this verse. It is finished. Oh, what pleasure. Do those charming words afford heavenly blessings without measure flow to us from Christ the Lord. It is finished. Finished all the types and shadows of the ceremonial law. Finished all that God has promised. Death and hell. No more shall all. It is finished. It is finished. Saints, from hence your comfort draw. Draw your comfort from that completed act. And Paul's saying, one of the things you saw, you look at your own experience, you know what you heard, and it was the completed work of Christ. It was the finished work, him portrayed as crucified. Well, he follows that with another direct question. Let me ask you this. I have one thing I want to ask you. And then he asks it again and again and again. Really, all these questions are the same question, aren't they? How did you become a Christian? How did you come to Christ? Let me ask you only this. He said, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, that idea of receiving the Spirit, don't get hung up on that. We're talking about conversion. Listen, when you, when you come to Christ, the Spirit inhabits your body. So, so I, I think it's vital. It's under, in fact, if you are in... Our reading plan, you read that this morning, 1 Corinthians 6. We are, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, so the Spirit indwells us, lives in us. And he is, so we're using biblical terminology to describe what it means to be a Christian. As we said, he is in Christ, such an emphasis in last Sunday's message. Well, here he's saying, receiving the Spirit, put an equal sign there between that and becoming a Christian. He's saying, did you receive this? Did you receive the Spirit because you were an ardent lawkeeper, or did you hear the gospel and believe it? 
Were you able to achieve such a level of disciplined law observance that you were granted the Spirit's presence and power? Or did you hear the gospel and believe it? Well, the obvious answer to this rhetorical question is, no, you received this by faith. You heard it and you believed it. I've been thinking about this this week. I, I, I just want to make, make, make this observation. We must not fail to see the mercy on both sides of this, both the hearing and the belief. There is mercy on either side of that discussion. That you ever heard the gospel in the first place. That you ever heard it in the first place. Such mercy. And that that message would land on your ears and you go, I believe that. I receive that. What kind of mercy that you hear? Children, what, what kindness that you live in a home, many of you, where there's proximity to the gospel all the time. It's spoken. Jesus is read and sung and spoken of and worshipped and revered and spoken to. The hearing is a mercy, and the believing is a mercy. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room? While thousands make a wretched choice, and rather starve than come. Not only that we heard it, But miraculously, the God who makes light to shine out of darkness shone in our hearts so that we would see the beauty of the glorious Christ. Why? It is by grace that you are saved, by faith. And that is not your own doing. That faith is not your your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the hearing is a mercy, the believing is. Is a mercy. 1 Corinthians 4 7. Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Well, the hearing is a mercy, the belief is a mercy. Well, the, the, the question before us, the question really of the Spirit's coming, you actually, you actually probably notice this. Verse 5 asks the same question as verse 2 from the perspective of God. And we're going to get to that middle verse there. But how, um, how did you receive the Spirit? Verse 2. Verse 5, how does God give the Spirit? Really the same, same question. He is assuming that they have the Spirit. So he's making an assumption here that the, that the Galatian church have actually turned and rested in Christ. So the question is not if, but how. How did you receive the Spirit? How does God grant the Spirit? And then he suggests the two two possibilities we discussed. The works of the law or hearing with faith. And the drift of the Galatian church is very understandable. It's something we all have to fight against now. The drift of the Galatian people was bringing some kind of even meager behavior and grounding their acceptance there. Do you see that? Even if it's a little bit, not big, he did the hard stuff, but 
We bring something. And that is that natural inclination that the gospel obliterates and we must labor to subdue. So the particular heresy that concerned Paul was the, related to the law of God. But it is reflective of a larger heresy that we all fight that subtly suggests that somehow my works play some role in my salvation. So his was a subset of a larger problem. His was, what he was addressing in Galatia was particularly their attachment to the works of the law, chiefly circumcision. But that is a subset of a larger heresy that we just call works righteousness. Just a, believing that at some level, I'm bringing something. It's not much, but I'm bringing something, and I expect my reception from God to be based in some measure on what I do. You see the questions. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Having begun in the Spirit, we're going to get to this, are you now made being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things? This word suffer is not suffer like we generally use it. But did you experience all of these things? Were your experiences vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, all of these questions are related to one principal question. It is this, how were you saved? Now, I'm just throw that question out to the room. How were you saved? Well, this would be a great thing to discuss at lunch today. How did, how did you become a Christian? Now, we know... Doctrinally, we know that we all have the same story, right? Repentance and faith, hearing and receiving the gospel. But the particulars of all that led up to what God used, the, first, the person who first displayed before you the beauty of Christ and the Lord awakened desire in your heart, all of that. But the doctrinal question is exactly the same. It's the same for us. It was the same for, for the saints at Galatia. We heard the gospel and we believed it. No more complex than that. We heard the hope of the gospel. And we believed it. Hearing with faith. Did God see something admirable in you that prompted warmth toward... I, look at her trying so hard. I'll move toward her. Well, she, she's making a good effort. Did God see something in you that prompted warmth towards you? maybe more applicable to us. Did he say, hey, you're doing great? You're doing great. Now let's address your, you know, your mouth's a little bit out of control. We get, let's get that under control and let's, let's scale back on some of the anger. Get, get that, yeah. And, but you're doing good. You get that taken care of. I'm coming. I'm bringing the spirit with me. Is that how you receive the spirit? No. You believed that God receives sinners and so you came to him, and he met you, received you, forgave you, adopted you, and the Spirit attended that occurrence. That's it. It was not bringing some meritorious act. Your entry into Christ was indisputably spiritual. 
spiritual in nature. The point he makes next is this. Not only is that spiritual, every moment of your life in Christ is spiritual. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected through the grind, through your fleshly efforts? Is this what is bringing you to full maturity in Christ? Do you believe that your early steps of faith, yes, that was supernatural, that's miraculous, but my day-by-day growth, now that's explainable. I can explain that because I'm working at it. Now, your your conversion, that is not where the miraculous stops. Do you know that? The same grace that bent your stubborn will to him is the same grace that keeps you coming back every single day. It was grace that taught your heart to fear. And it is grace that relieved those fears. And it is the same grace that will lead you home. So as you have received him by grace, through faith, in Christ, completed work on the cross, as you have rested in the work of Jesus, so walk in him, Paul would tell Colossae. Having begun in the spirit, he now being perfected, through the flesh. He says, look, what you suffered, what you experienced, were those experiences pointless? Did you miss the obvious? Again, Phillips, who's a little dicey with his language. Surely you cannot be so idiotic. This is his translation. Surely you cannot be so idiotic as to think that a man begins his spiritual life in the spirit, and then completes it by reverting back to outward observances. Not so bad. That's dumb. That's that's foolishness. That is definitional legalism. It is attaching merit to what you do that will never bear you up. It was never meant to bear you up. Their drift from the gospel was not only disloyal, it was not only dishonoring to God, it was foolish. It was dumb. Are you so foolish, he says. Having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected through the flesh? So the essence of Paul's argument is that their new position was a contradiction to the gospel. Hearing and belief, one side of things. Works of the law, altogether different. Now to receive this, we have to address and just acknowledge. When we, it's easy for us to read this and go, yeah, those Galatians, they are so dumb. So dumb! We must address something that's natural in all of us. It, it's a fundamental value among honorable people. We tend to operate, I think, On this simple principle, you have what you have because you do what you do. Am I wrong? You have what you have because you do what you do. Why do you have what you have? Because you did what you did. You worked hard. We pay our own way. We don't rely on the generosity of others. We got some people never quote another scripture in the Bible except for 2 Thessalonians 3:10. If a man does not work, he ought not eat. 
The problem becomes when that noble ethic seeps down into your soteriology. Man doesn't work, y'all not eat. You know, look, you don't do something. Don't expect you're going to be received warmly. If we were walking in this neighborhood where this church is positioned, we walk over into Sequoia Hills, very nice area. We're walking through those, uh, alongside those beautiful houses. We see a man out in his yard, and maybe this would be a little forward, probably inappropriate to ask, but if I'm walking along and I see him and I'm admiring his house, it's like, sir, do you, do, do you mind me asking, how, how's a man get a house like this? He said, Ryan, I worked hard. When I was young, I started in the warehouse. I was loading trucks. I was sweeping the warehouse. I, I stayed late. I worked Saturdays. Moved up into middle management. Took some risks. Was received into kind of the leadership and took out a big loan, borrowed some money. I bought the company. We've expanded and here we are. I've done really well, but I've worked really hard for it. We keep walking down the same road. Another man out in his yard, we ask him the same question. Well, how, how, how's a man get a house like this? He says, Ryan, my, my dad is very wealthy. And he is very generous. And he loves me. And he gave me this house. Which guy do you want to be? Which guy do you want to be? There's something we have to suppress in us. We have to push down this sense that I have what I have because I did what I did. That's definitional works righteousness. That's what legalism is. We ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. Consider all that you have received in Christ. All the glories of union with Jesus, peace with God, freedom from fear, lifting of the dread of judgment, the marvel of adoption, that we have the privilege of coming to him as father, that his wrath was completely assuaged in Christ, and we have the hope of union with him into glory. Consider all of that and then carry to that this profane thought. He gives me all of that, and I give him one dollar out of every ten I make. The very notion is revolting. You know that's not right. It is not by works of the law, and neither is it your disciplined obedience that saves you. Paul's argument is pretty clear. If you believe that, you're either... He said, I, 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 see two, I see two options. Either you're stupid or you're spellbound. Either, either you are foolish 
or somebody's bewitched you. As Christians, we have to get comfortable with the fact that what we have received, we receive because our Father is rich and He is generous and He loves us and He has given us this. This is generally attributed to John Bunyan. I don't think it's John Bunyan. John Barry's probably a hymn writer. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The New City Catechism that we use here, what does the law of God require? You know this. Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. So if that's your plan, it's probably a little late. Because your obedience is not perfect, nor is it perpetual. You're already sunk. If we get in, we get on the basis of grace alone. The law says do this. The gospel says Jesus did that. The law says work. The gospel says rest in the work that Jesus did. The law makes demands. The gospel not only meets those demands, but sets before us the great promises of God. The gospel loads up the backpack. The, the, the law loads up the backpack. The gospel says Jesus took the backpack. He carried that for us. And we receive it by hearing with faith. Now that kind of puts us in our place, doesn't it? That, that, that is not a particularly flattering message. He gets all the glory. We get none. You say, Ronnie, does our behavior matter at all then? Does, our mat, does what we do matter at all? Do we go, by, by the way, Matt touched on this last week. Do, do we go straight antinomian? Are we lawless people now? No. Our obedience is responsive to the grace that we have received from a God who is already happy with us in Christ. Right? My obedience is not trying to to get his pleasure. It is responsive to a God whose grace is demonstrated by receiving us with full joy in Christ. We have retreated into Christ, and I can tell you the Father is perfectly happy with his Son, and we are in his Son. You see the simplicity of that? You heard and you believed. A brother shared this quote at Theology Breakfast, I think it was on Slack too, from John Piper. The only sin that can be successfully killed in our life is a forgiven sin. The, on, the only lived out holiness that pleases God is the holiness we pursue because we are already holy. If we don't stand in the joyful confidence that we are forgiven and justified, we will inevitably turn holiness and sin-killing into a means of attaining God's acceptance. And such a life denies Christ and dead ends in destruction and not glory. You see the simplicity of this? You heard and you believed. That's how you received the Spirit. That's how you were received into Christ. Most of us would say at our conversion it was fairly simple. No mystical voices, no dramatic, 
nothing dramatic in any kind of visible sense, no angels present that you could see. We just heard the message of Jesus and we believed it. So Paul is saying, do you think you received that by works of the law? You think that the Spirit's work and all of its attendant blessings, all the graces of the Spirit's ministry to us, came to you because you were circumcised? All the provisions of Pentecost, the Spirit's constant presence, enabling, convicting, comforting, instructing, empowering, and illuminating. You think that came as a reward for your discipline? Jesus didn't come to reward good people. He came to save bad people like us. Paul's saying, are you really that foolish? You're telling me that if you just put your tools away on Friday night and sleep in on Saturday, then sick people are going to get better. You're going to see the miraculous because you obeyed the law. Did somebody put a spell on you? Who's bewitched you that you would believe that? Do you think that the miracle of regeneration happened because you make three annual pilgrimages to, to Jerusalem and honor the feast days and you watch your diet? Paul's saying, what, what kind of voodoo, what kind of, what kind of wild, bewitching thought would have you thinking like that? If you were in Christ... You came because you faced your sin. You faced seriously that you are an offender against the law of God. What the law did do is it held your head underwater. What the law did do was expose your need. You faced your sin. You despaired of your own righteousness. You looked to Jesus. You saw the sacrifice of Christ. Enduring the punishment that should have fallen to you. You saw that the Father received his work and that he demonstrated that by raising him from the dead. You considered the great love of God. You showed up empty-handed. You believed that he saves those who come to him by faith. That's what you believed. And you turned to him believing. Now, if you came to Christ, that's how you came. You know what Paul's saying? Church, look here. Stay right there. Stay right there. You don't graduate from that miracle and then go back to the grind. Reverting back to that, it's foolish. It's foolish. Those graces did not end at conversion. I like to think of it this way. We don't just believe, we became believers. That makes sense. So I don't look back at my conversion and go, okay, there was a point in my life, I was a young man, I heard the gospel, I repented and believed. I didn't, I didn't just believe, I became one who believes. I didn't just repent, I became a repenter. Does that make sense? I, came, I became one who regularly is turning back to the Lord, moment by moment, day by day. I didn't in a moment love him, I became one who loves him. I didn't just look to Jesus I became one of those who again and again and again are continually looking to Christ. We we don't move beyond that. We live there. 
So having begun in the Spirit, you think, you think the flesh is going to bring you to perfection. You came to Christ because you believed God to be merciful to sinners. Now, do you believe that that same gospel applies to this morning's sins and tomorrow's sins? Well, that's the argument from experience. Now he's going to make a scriptural argument which will extend into the coming weeks in Abraham's example. He said, all right, consider yourself. Consider your own experience. It's how you receive Christ. Now, consider Abraham. Paul's going to develop an argument here, and it's masterful as he gets further into this chapter and beyond. By pointing to the first and most revered of the patriarchs. So uh, the Judaizers would have put the, pointed to Moses. He said, you know what? Let's just keep hitting rewind and go all the way back to the first of our patriarchs, our father, Abraham. Verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You know where he, you know where he got that? He got it from Genesis 15, right? It's repeated elsewhere in Scripture, but that's where we first see that idea that Abraham believed God and it was credited or counted to him as righteousness. I think, I think Abraham has to be the patron saint of belief in God, right? That, that is his most enduring quality. or less, and Not perfect, not perfect. I mean, he, he had some significant failures. But he did believe the Lord. I often, I often tell you that Kierkegaard, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, uh, he referred to him as the knight, the K-N-I-G-H-T, the knight of the absurd. Because so much of his life is just, it's just, it's just crazy. It is, it is crazy. The covenant that he made, we see this in, uh, well, you know what, let's back up. Genesis 12, so before you get to 15, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. What, what are you going to do, Abram? All right, get up. Get your things together, gather your family, get all, get all the livestock. Go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to a land that I will show you. What land, Lord? Well, the one I'm going to show you. Well, where? Well, you'll know. Just go. But this, I mean, he, somebody said he packed up his things and marched right off the map. You'll know when you get there. And I will, he said, make of you a great nation. I will bless you and I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Next verse. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Where are you going, Abraham? Not quite sure. I guess we'll see. Packed up his family, marched right off the map. Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. The Lord came to Abram and said, Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. I'm your exceeding great reward. But Abram said, Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. I, I I have, I, we've not been able to have a baby. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. It's the only time this guy's referenced in Scripture. You don't even know who he is. Maybe a household servant. I'm going to have to leave all my stu stuff to a servant because I don't have a son. God said, Abram, come out here with me. And, it, and he's under the night sky, in the desert, 
No ambient light. And he says, do you see the stars in the heaven? I wonder if God had this in mind when he made the stars back earlier in Genesis. When I, you see the stars in the heavens? Count them. And I'll wait. Take your time. I can't. I can't number the stars. Well, your descendants are going to be like that. Lord, I'm old. My wife is old. Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90, and here comes Isaac. Heir of the promise, seed of the woman, heir of the coming deliverer. Sarah looks at that and says, that's just funny. We're going to name that baby Funny. We're calling him laughter, Isaac. That is just funny. That's absurd. Works did not save Abraham. He just believed God. So Genesis 15, Abraham standing outside, looking up into the night sky with God, hearing of the promise of a descendant. And he's 100 years old, and Abraham says, well, all right. Abraham believed God, and his belief was credited to him for righteousness. So what, what all did he believe? I... I'm not sure entirely. I know what Jesus understood of his belief. For he said in John chapter 8, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day and he saw it and was glad. He, he, he trusted the God who could deliver him. He believed the Lord and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, to get this point, we have to understand circumcision is still 14 years away when all this happened. Circumcision happens in, in, I mean, God come to, came, came to, to Abraham in, in chapter 17 and tells him to be circumcised. And I assume he probably responded, I'm sorry, what? He said, but he, beg your pardon. So he's, he's um, circumcised in chapter 17, but he believed God in 12 and 15. So this is a basic hermeneutic. 12 and 15 are before 17. So he believed God. And that, long before circumcision was ever in the picture. And that was credited to him for righteousness. So Paul would point to that. This is easy math. This is easy math. 15 is before 17. Your logic doesn't hold. He is not saved on the basis of his obedience. And neither are you. And that's the message. If you are a Christian, it is because you heard the gospel and you believe the gospel. Let me close with an illustration. Let's say you and I decide to buy the Pilot Corporation. Now, that's the big one. That's a big, big business. Forbes has it at about $1.3 billion. But let's say you, you've got money and, you know, I've got a little money and... Uh, <laughs> And you say, hey, let's, let, let, let's buy it. The Haslam's will sell, let's buy it. And you come to me and say, Ronnie, how much you got? And I say, well, um, I got a little setback. Um, the Jeep needs tires. I, I, could, I got some end tables I could sell on Craigslist. I, I don't, let's just say $2,500. That's about what I can bring 
And so you do the math and say, okay, well, that's 1.3 billion minus 2,500. <laughs> we bring that to the Haslams and they say, yeah, we'll do that. What just happened? We bought Pilate. He said, well, no, right, not we. It was, no, we did. We bought Pilate. Because I brought what I brought. You brought what you brought. Church, look here. That is not how the gospel works. We came, we sang it tonight, uh, this morning, we come empty-handed. We are B-R-O-K-E. We don't have $2,500. We got nothing. We come empty-handed. You don't bring the best that you've got, and then God makes up the difference. Of Abraham. Of Abraham, it is said in Romans 4. What should we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does it say? Here it is. Abraham just believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, listen church, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So if you hire a man to come mow your yard and you pay him, they don't go, for me? Thank you. No, you earned that. Right? You worked and, and you got paid for it. It's not counted as a gift. It's his due to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies ungodly people like us. His faith is counted as righteousness. And that is the horrible, what, that is the that is the antithesis to the horror, horrible error of legalism. That terrible distortion of the gospel. That life-sucking, soul-eroding, crushing burden of law-keeping. That is no place to plant your flag. It, it, it's the mindset that says, yes, I, I know that it is the cross that brings me into a relationship with God. It is Jesus' work that made the Father happy with me. But keeping him happy with me, that has a lot to do with what I do. The frequency of my devotions, the fervor of my worship, the regularity with which I speak the gospel, the consistency of my devotion. Now, your obedience is a responsive act of worship to a God who is already happy with you in Christ. Is that your plan to keep God happy? If you sin tomorrow, and you will sin tomorrow, you won't have to wait till tomorrow to sin, but if you sin tomorrow, if cracks begin to form in your foundation, if your righteousness ruptures, church, look here. Look to Christ, because it was not your righteousness that was holding you anyway.
The same grace that saved you is the same grace that keeps you. And the same grace that keeps you will carry you all the way home. We ought to celebrate that. Amen. Father, settle our hearts there. Lord, we know our impulse is strong. That impulse is very strong to retreat back into our track record. Would you give us grace now even in the practice of the ordinance which is before us to look again to Christ, knowing that it is his righteousness that pleads for us, that our righteousness could never hold us anyway. Grant that we would remember again the gospel, the simple, simple message that we we heard this and we believed this. We heard that God was merciful to sinners. We heard that on the cross he accomplished all that was necessary to reconcile us to himself. We heard this message and we believed it. We heard of the great love of God, the great previousness of the love of God. Grant that we would not only reflect on it as the means of our deliverance, but as the basis for our hope today, knowing that the grind did not save us then and the grind will not save us now. So we magnify you for your mercy that was displayed and is being displayed and will be displayed in Christ alone. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.